Hello and welcome to the Acolytes of Merlin. Uh, today we will, we will be discussing Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Uh, and joining me today is, or are, is our <laughs> grammar. Oh, my name's Austin. <laughs> and I've been a Star Wars fan all my life. There's my intro. And? Uh, this is uh, Brian. I... Uh... Also, I've been a Star Wars fan my, my entire career, so uh, a privilege to join you guys. All right, and uh, also... And I'm Matthew, and I've been a Star Wars fan for as long as I can remember. Yes, uh, also chiming in that I have been a Star Wars fan, yeah, as long as I can remember. So, this is the first, uh, kind of, to do a little background, the first truly controversial Star Wars movie, I'd say. I mean, pe- people had some issues with Return of the Jedi a little bit, and, like, some people, the Empire was a little bit weird because it was dark and whatnot, but this is the first one where some people were very, very angry. Uh, this was the first Star It had been, like, what, 16 years since the Star Wars movie had come out. People were really excited. What's young Obi-Wan going to be like? Oh, who, here's his master, who's not Yoda, apparently. Uh, who's even better than Yoda. But we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Qui-Gon Jinn. Um, so what was... We can just go through. What is everyone's general experience with the movie at a high level, either when you kind of first saw it or how you kind of view it now at just a kind of higher level. We need a way to know who's supposed to talk. Uh, Who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's the same for everyone. I was going to say we can start at the top, whoever's at the top, Brian, and then me, and then Matthew, but I don't know if it's the same for everybody. Yes, it is in order for me. Okay, so I think... I think in general, when I first saw it, I was a kid. So I think the the maturity level and the general understanding of cinematics was was different then. I I think at that point I came to, in, in some ways, uh, view the movie as nostalgia after a number of years because I used to watch it with my, my father. Um, I, I think my view of the movie has obviously changed and, and grown. Uh, I would say overall, I think it's definitely one of the weakest Star Wars movies, but I think there's certain parts of it that get flack that probably shouldn't. And I also think that um, it had some really important story building elements that I actually came to enjoy. Um, that being said, there's a lot of dead space. So I'd say that would be my first overall impression. As for me, uh, it was my favorite as a kid. It was my straight-up favorite. I loved this movie. I watched it over and over again. So going back to watch it for this was nostalgic, for sure. Um, but I grew to unironically enjoy more than I thought I was going to, because I thought for a long time that I actually ended up hating this movie, but I kind of changed my mind on it on this, record, on this uh, viewing, actually. Um, but it does have a lot of issues, mainly the acting between two characters that drive me nuts. Um, that's kind of my view on it. And yeah, so this one, I, I guess, I don't want to say it was my favorite when I was growing up, but it was definitely, this is the movie that drove my love of Star Wars because 
I definitely ran that VHS tape, uh, ran it out uh, how many times I would just rewind it, watch it over and over and over again. I really understand why my parents hate Jar Jar Binks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for no other reason than uh, just how constantly his voice would be filling our home. Um, but then growing up with the movie, uh, kind of being able to see its flaws, but also um, some of the really, uh, the greatness of certain aspects of the movies and some of the areas uh, where it was, you know, Star Wars has always been uh, pushing, uh, pushing the envelope, pushing um, new technologies new into new areas in filmmaking. Um, I think especially rewatching it for this one with a uh, a new sound bar, the sound design in this movie exceeded even uh, what the original trilogy was able to do. Uh, so learning to appreciate it at a deeper level than just uh, lasers and Darth Maul when I was a kid um, has, was definitely, has all been a very nice thing to do as I've uh, grown up. Oh, cool. And I, I would still say that lasers and Darth Maul are the best parts of this movie, but we'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> so I I have a lot of nostalgia for this movie, because this was the first one that I saw in theaters. The, like, Darth Maul is really cool. The Darth Maul, the lightsaber fight is incredible. There, I, I remember not, like, I just remember feeling, oh, this is Star Wars, this is awesome. As I've grown up, I, it has become in my bottom. Well, we'll do a ranking episode later. But I really don't. I think this is a really. I think this is a bad movie. And I there are as a Star Wars movie, I really appreciate it. And I, I, having a lot of uh, sentimentality for it, I it, uh, elevated certain aspects of it, especially especially on this last rewatch. Uh, there were elements of this last rewatch that really kind of stood out to me that hadn't really before. Uh, certain parts are still bad, like Jar Jar is still awful, and there are other parts that are pretty bad. But I, I think it's yeah. I think discussing the prequels gets it. It, it gets complicated, or it, sh- it should be a more complex discussion than it often is. Uh, and I, I think that's changing with the sequels, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, but I think this is a a bad movie in general, but there are still some redeeming parts and some really interesting things that it does. Uh, and why, Matthew, one thing I didn't note was the sound design is awesome. <laughs> uh, and, and of, of course, aided by the stellar soundtrack from... John Williams. All right. Anybody have any particular topics? I don't think we want to go through just go through the movie, but there's a lot of there's a lot of directions we can go from here. Does anybody have anything in particular they want to start with? The pacing. Okay. What about the pacing? Well, for the first twenty minutes, it's rapid fire there's a million things happening happening in the first 20 minutes we go to like four or five different locations um 30 different characters are doing 30 different things it's very it was like even as a kid i remember having it being hard to follow it's not so hard to follow now um because i just kind of know it but 
as a kid, it was very difficult to follow. And then once they get to Tatooine, it like almost halts. And I actually enjoy the pacing there a little bit more just because I'm finally able to breathe. But it's very jarring at the same time. Yeah, the Tatooine section stuck out as, in general, a place, a, a more positive element than I remember it being. Uh, I particularly really like the Qui-Gon and Anakin. I, I mean, Qui-Gon just is, a st- is, is the best part of the movie in general, I think. But, yeah, I see what you're saying with the pacing. Yeah, there's a lot of... I I still don't... I still couldn't tell you, like, what's... Why do I care about the trade dispute? Why does this matter? Um, so I, I, I feel like a lot of a lot's happening, but I still don't really feel, even in those intro sections in, on Naboo, why I should care about what's going on, or what, or what, or what the stakes even are, other than, well, the trade federation's attacking because they are, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized there was more to it than the Trade Federation is attacking because they are. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think the, the Tatooine section is almost a movie in itself. You kind of get there, they're presented with the problem early, it builds up to the climax of the pod race, um, and then you kind of have a resolution there. They've solved their problem and they're moving on. Um, and it is like we said, a little bit more appropriately appropriately paced. And it kind of does seem like almost the entire first act is just kind of what excuse can they, we need them to get to Tatooine because we need to ma- meet uh, Anakin. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, it, it does feel like an excuse. Um, yeah. <laughs> and every step of the way, they encounter an obstacle and it's solved in like 20 seconds from like the, uh, the shield generator being hit and R2 has to go fix it. They just go and then they fix it. They don't even cut to a different scene to let you wonder what was going to happen. They just solve it in that scene, which is ironic because it cuts so much. It often cuts to two characters. They exchange a few lines and then it cuts back to a different characters and there's an action sequence and then they cut and repeat. Um, that's all again. That's all the t- first 20 minutes thing. Yeah, that that shield generator sequence stood out to me, and I was I remember it being when I was a kid. This just longer thing where oh, like all the droids are slowly being picked off, and R two's the last one left. But it, they're it's like ten seconds, and they're all gone. If that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think so. I understand the points you guys bring up. I think the I think for the the biggest miss for me is you know. Why do I care about the Gungans? Okay, so going to go to a Gungan. Well, I don't like, ever, but yeah. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you know, it, so I actually, in, in a different view than you guys, maybe to a point, I actually don't have a problem with the pacing in the beginning of the movie. I think that building momentum, especially when you're trying to drive home a point that, um, you know, the the Jedi who are used to peaceful negotiations and, um, and in a galaxy that's relatively used to some level of peace, um, you're trying to build momentum to show that this is there's urgency. So for for me, I'm actually okay with it. 
the big problem I have is, you know, why do I care about the Gungans? Why do I care about Odoganga? Why do I care about that diversion? I I really don't. Um, well, it so, all does stem around the Naboo conflict with the Theed, because it just turns out that um, the Naboo can't get help from the Senate, so they have to turn to the Gungans. That's the Gungans' entire role in the film as this third party that they need to beg for help. Um, but to, and, to, you know, and then the thing, the concern I have is to what the thing that always kind of annoyed me in some way is to what end, right? You don't tie the Gungans back into anything, right? right. You, you don't tie the Gungans back into episode two. You don't tie it back into episode three, you know, and nobody, Jar Jar, they're having to find excuses to tie them into the plot. Now, that being said, and, you know, that's the low-hanging fruit, but the, the pacing in and of itself doesn't bother me when you're trying to build momentum. I just think the way that they kind of meandered their way through it didn't make sense to me. I, I'd agree, and I would go... My, my biggest thing that I kept thinking with the, the all the Theed stuff in particular was show me... They, they talk, oh, they're... They're in camps or they're suffering. We don't see one single instance of like a Naboo citizen that's like being even corralled into one of these camps. It's just they exist in the ether of the story and we never see them. So what emotional connection do I have to the Naboo people to care about like what? Well, like I, I totally see what you're saying, Brian, where they want to create this sense of urgency. But I don't have this sense of urgency because it's just, I mean, people joke about this movie as just people talking and a lot of it is. And sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes it's not. And in this case, for me, it is because I never actually see what they're talking about. I never see the new people suffering. Like right. Cardinal Rule of Writing, show, don't tell. They do nothing but tell in this movie with the plight of the Naboo, which I think is a big problem. And it, yeah, I think part of that is that I, I kind of see what you know they were going for in like saying that because you see what Obi Wan says when that message comes in to the ship. You know, he says it's a trap. You know, pretty much saying, "Oh, they're just trying to get you to respond so that they can uh, trace you." But I think they kind of set up these subtle points, but because there's so much going on and they're saying so much just all over the place, kind of like. The trade dispute, which nobody really understands because they didn't spend enough time on it. Are the Naboo actually suffering? Well, we don't know. I think they leave that, the intention was to leave that ambiguous, you know, are they actually suffering? Because uh, theoretically, you know, they don't know. Like the characters uh, on the ship don't know if what's actually happening. Um, but again, you when you don't kind of dive into that, you don't realize that's the conflict that Padme's dealing with. Are her people actually suffering? What should she do? You know, is there that sense of urgency for it? But you just kind of paper over it so you don't you don't know uh, that that's the point they're trying to make. And yeah, it and doesn't I think... help. Oh, no. oh sorry. No, it doesn't gonna... help that um, Padme, like, does not emote enough, like, at her all. Her line delivery. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> that was basically my whole point. Yeah, and so you know, I, I yeah, I agree with you guys. I think I think the actually the first ten or twenty minutes, like in and of themselves, I actually don't have a problem with the 
with the pace of it, they, they just never create the, they don't ever create the stakes, right? They create urgency in the pacing in the first 20 minutes without any tangible stakes. Um, yeah. and, and that's really difficult to do when you're now actually in some ways in a new Star Wars universe, right? Because with the original trilogy, you're trying to break in some ways away from that. And, yeah. into, and, and trying to create another world, you can't create a world in which there's no stakes or tangible stakes um, at, on the table. And that, that's my, just my biggest issue with the movie is what, what, what's the movie about? Is it about them trying to save Naboo? Well, kind of, but like we spend a lot, an awful lot of time meeting Anakin on Tatooine and... But is it about Palpatine's rise to power? Well, kind of. I couldn't really point to like what the character's actual goals are other than what kind of stop the Trade Federation from doing stuff. And why is the, and the Trade Federation doing stuff? Because like Palps in his cloak is telling them to do it. And I think that's why the Tatooine portion shines a lot more because the stakes are a lot more realized and everyone's goals are a lot more clear. They have to get their parts for their ship and... Um, they have to put everything on the table um, to this one boy to help save the day or they're screwed and they're going to be stranded on Tatooine for who knows how long. So at that point, the stakes and the goals become a lot more tangible. And I think that's why that part shines in addition to the slower pacing that takes its time. That being said, I actually think I actually think there could there would be would have been an easy fix. If you actually just showed the stakes in the first 20 minutes, like showing them in the camps and explain the Trade Federation conflict a little more in the background behind it, you could probably fix all of this. But and you get rid of Jar Jar and, you know, some of the some of the Odo Gunga, uh, you know, tangent. Um, you could have actually fixed a lot of these issues pretty quickly because there's actually a lot number of parts of the movie that actually shine individually in the there's a lot of really cool world building in this movie, but the thing is, like, it, it just feels I don't care about a lot of what's going on in these parts of the world, in, in these different settings, for the most part. I, I think in some ways it was almost a proof of concept in a way, because, like, um, you know, the Gungan City, uh, you know, really the Gungans, that's such a break from what we saw in the original trilogy as far as world building. It's one of these things... It's one of the first places I feel in the Star Wars universe that we see in the movies uh, that kind of feels like it couldn't exist on Earth. Um, but again, you don't really tie it into the story, and it really almost seems like a technical proof of concept. Like, oh, look, this is the cool stuff we can do. And I think, because you look at Coruscant, which is kind of the same thing, um, the entire city-wide or, you know, planet-wide city. Right. It's awesome. <laughs> and yeah. Well, yeah. end up tying into the story so it works a little bit better as more than just look at what the advances in technology allow us to do um, as far as world building and making something that truly feels alien. Yeah, and to add on to that, um, what was I going to say? The designs. The designs is kind of what you're talking about. Uh, there's a lot of cool concepts, including a lot of the designs of like the droids and the ships and the creatures that I love. I love how the droidica looks. I love how the bigger fish, all the fish, actually. I even like how the bubble city looks. 
um, and don't even get me started on, you know, the pod racers. They all look sick and they're all conceptually really cool. A secret underwater city of a third party, uh, a neutral party in a war is very interesting. They just, it did not get executed well at all. Yeah, all the, that's a great point about the design. Everything looks cool. Darth Maul, all the stuff with this, his Sith stuff is, has a really interesting aesthetic. But yeah, they don't do much with it. Uh, that being said, okay. <laughs> that being uh, that being said, I I think there's there's some parts of the Phantom Menace that get unfairly beat up. Okay. okay? So now, not not to play the devil's advocate, but but certainly you know there's some individual portions of this movie that even in the plot of them actually really shine. Um, the, I think there were some real highlights on Tatooine, uh, with, uh, with the pod race and some of the actions surrounding the pod race. I think seeing the scuffle in the desert between Qui-Gon and Darth Maul in and of itself actually was, was really great. I think some of the exposition on not so much of the politics of the Senate, um, but, but certainly I think some of the exposition about how Palpatine became chancellor was actually somewhat well done. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I, I think we would all agree that the, the fight scene at the end and the, the, the breaking into the, um, into the stronghold, I think there were some real highlights there. I think the problem came with how all of those pieces were tied together, which is, I think is fair, but I, I think it, I think it's also unfair to discount some of the really strong elements that George Lucas puts into his films, even at his worst. Yeah, I Ian McDiarmid kills it, and all everything with Palpatine conceptually is excellent. I but I I think that all of all of the politics in this movie and in the prequels in general should have been about Palpatine basically like backstabbing and game of thronesing his way to power because that's what he's doing it's just i like we should have seen you could have inserted more tension if he's like blackmailing i don't know the senator that padme's trying to negotiate with or someone that like stuff like that like that's a more more personal political angle um yeah, and the Qui-Gon in general is just great. And he really, I got, I'd said this stuck out to me, in particular on that Tatooine sequence, like, all his relationship with Padme is great. It is, actually. <laughs> like, he doesn't take, like, like, like he, he knows, and she probably knows that he knows, and that's, like, the fun dynamic there. And I, and I really like all of his mentor stuff with Anakin. And it's, like, really kind of shows that he's really the mentor that Anakin needed and obviously never really got after this movie, but uh, yeah, his uh, every, and Liam Neeson is just like awesome in that role. And there's one scene in particular that I want to point out because I, we, we discuss it, we talk about it, but in some ways it's actually one of the most understated scenes in, in the saga um, when when Anakin's walking away from his mom, okay, and then turns back and runs back and then and then, and then leaves, you know, there's something really powerful about that moment. Um, 
I think it, that moment in particular sets a lot of stakes about how important it is um, for for Anakin's development moving forward. That bond, that attachment that George Lucas builds in right there, I think is understated. Because it's partly it sets, understated because of the acting. Partially. Which I know you can't blame the kid for, <laughs> but... He's <laughs> bad. I get it. That being said, that scene's really pivotal. I agree. There's a Anakin gets some decent is writing it like the line. I I had a dream. I was a Jedi and came back and freed all the slaves. Ooh, that's something they really should have. I mean, the Clone Wars gets into some stuff, some of that stuff without going into it, but they really should have focused more on that in the movies, where you take his ideal, you take this just really compassionate idealism that he has and you just turn it up and you just turn it up to like 11 to the point where it's no longer compassionate. <laughs> I would uh, actually love to talk about that whole scene. Yes. That okay, was that, that dinner scene yep. was the first scene where I was like, Oh, I'm suddenly engaged and interested in what's going on. Uh, Cause all of a sudden all the characters main traits really sh main traits really shine um like you were saying uh his uh optimism anakin's optimism but also his selflessness and his pride which come into play later in the series um qui-gon is shown as this ca he's this calculating stoic but also very caring gentleman um even padme kind of shows off her real abruptness and uh, her straightforward attitude to getting things done. Uh, it's just, it's honestly a really good scene. Jar Jar kind of takes a back seat and the little role that he does play actually serves to move the dialogue forward in a pretty natural way. And I really appreciated that. I, I do think that's an understated part when uh, Qui-Gon catches the tongue after saying it's a Jedi reflex or like the, thing about Jedi reflexes and Anakin. I yep. think that was an understated thing. And just, I just kind of feel like something that we keep coming back to is it feels like the things that the movie focuses on appropriately, it does well. I think there's just so much going on that it can't possibly focus on every little thing. Um, and I think that lack of focus is what leads to the detrimental aspects of the movie. But, and you also think about movies that do a good job with, um, exposition and building the world and building the stakes for movies that come after it. One movie that always comes to mind for me when thinking about this would be something like The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, beyond the fact that the book's great, uh, talking about the um, the movie, you know, even without the book, um, actually builds the world in a very natural way um, and builds the stakes. And I, I think the Phantom Menace just tried to jump right into it, right? without building any of the stakes, without really building the world, and and that made it really difficult. Well, I think, they, in, in that sense, they, they almost, in some ways, he tries to replicate, like, the big the big iconic opening of A New Hope, where you see the Star, the Star Destroyer, and they board Leia's ship, and then and you have this big bombastic opening, and then you go into the small, like, then, you, then your story really kind of starts back on Tatooine, like Luke, et cetera, et cetera, we don't really have that reset. It's just we had the kind of bigger opening with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon fighting the droids in the ship. Uh, and then we kind of go right into the plot without 
any other context. And even Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon don't really know the context that they're in. Well, or, in, or at least they don't convey it well to the audience. Which is problematic, right. right? Because, you know, the main characters don't know who the hell they are, right? Then how the hell are we supposed to know who they are or what the movie even is about, right? Yeah, I think uh, it, it kind of worked in A New Hope with just, like, using the the opening crawl as kind of all the backstory you need on the world you're coming into. But I think that's also just a... It was a little... It was a simpler concept, Empire's bad, um, rebels are good. And here it's kind of like, well, you got the Trade Federation, but people are trying to prove that they're bad. Um, and you don't really explain, uh, you know, that yes, they're easily the bad guys, which isn't the point. They're not supposed to be, I mean, obviously they're supposed to be bad guys, but they're not supposed to be like as stereotypical, just 100% bad for the sake of being bad. Um, so without that exposition to explain them, you don't really understand the conflict that's coming. Right. They're, they're, they're a corporation. Like it's, they're like a company. So it's like that has representation in the Senate, which some of the politics in the prequels are fascinating, but like they don't, that, there's a, I have a larger point of, there's a really good story in the prequels and a really interesting Really, George Lucas has some really interesting and and relevant stuff to say about government and power and corruption. But like, we don't really get like a lot of that. We don't really get that as succinctly as we like, or, or it's not told in the best or most in the best way. Right, and that's been said before. Everyone, like, I, I see. It seems to be like the general consensus is that the prequels had a great story underneath. Um, but the problem is, is that it's underneath and you kind of have to do some digging and some head cannons and watch the clone wars. And then you suddenly find the good story. Um, and it definitely started here with the kind of not so well told story with some good ideas. And I think that kind of comes as, as something I think we're finding out today. I think about just storytelling, uh, kind of in this modern era as we see more and more, you know, TV series becoming almost the strongest uh, method of uh, telling these more drawn out stories. Um, the trilogy as like the movie trilogy, it almost asked this question, was the prequels, was, is that story too ambitious for three movies? Um, because there is so, there are so many moving parts. And then when you see, I think the thing that really has strengthened the prequels over time is the eight seasons of Clone Wars. Yeah. That we got um, that kind of fills in all these gaps that uh, were left ambiguous by the movies. And then I don't want to say retcon, but are explained later on. And, you know, something I think that we'll talk about, especially more when we get to the sequels, but how things that have come after the original uh, work have strengthened or weakened it. And here with the prequels, you know, the Clone Wars has strengthened it uh, retroactively. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, I kind of have a point that there, there's, there's, you, you could make an argument that the prequel trilogy could, could have, should have just been the Clone Wars. 
And then episode one, like there shouldn't have been this for this ten happening ten years before the Clone Wars start, and like it really should have just been the Clone Wars is the prequel trilogy, and if you want, you can do like flashbacks or something like Force Visions to show stuff from this time period that you want to get across, and that lets you develop it more in the movies, and that because that immediately established it would have immediately established the conflict in episode one that of like what of like and that established gives you more stakes and then it gives you more time in that second movie to really develop the anakin obi-wan relationship and etc etc uh i mean it's not perfect because i mean the palpatine apprentice stuff gets is already wonky and gets even wonkier if you do that but yeah, I, I think it could have been a stronger trilogy if it's just the Clone Wars and that is your conflict for the trilogy. Right, this is the most disconnected of like any of the main movies. Which I remember when they first started announcing that they were going to do you know, the Star Wars, what they used to call the anthology films. I don't know if they're still calling them that now, but Rogue One, Solo. I remember thinking, well, I just kind of hope they're like Phantom Menace. Um, and that they're <laughs> disconnected because... If this, you know, if Phantom Menace, if that's not Anakin, if that's not Obi-Wan, and it doesn't really have that connection to, you know, the Skywalker saga, I think that movie's a little bit, I think it's, it would almost work better as a standalone, um, just adventure in the Star Wars universe. I would disagree with that simply because of our point that the Clone Wars um, retroactively makes it better, and... Uh, I agree with that point, 100% agree with that point, because back to the dinner scene, as I was saying, Anakin, we see his traits that become so important later on. And I think if you take that out by making Anakin someone else, the movie would be so much less interesting. That's fair. Do you want to talk about Jar Jar? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's awful. <laughs> he, okay, Jar Jar is awful but like per what has now become a regular um, unfortunately a regular occurrence in the discourse around star wars uh, ahmed best has got just gotten an an absolutely absurd and terrible amount of negative feedback and hate uh, to my knowledge and that and that part was just absolutely terrible ugly but, yeah. so so i think like he he's he i think kind of did the best he could uh but like for whatever reason george lucas wanted this character in the movie and i just why <laughs> because it's george lucas will very happily remind anybody star wars is for 12 year olds um and that's you know that's what he always goes back to and i think you know i look back on it like okay i do find jar jar annoying as an adult but I loved Jar Jar when I was a kid. I did uh, too. I, and I think that's the point, like for George Lucas, is this is supposed to be a kid's film. That's why he includes him. I think one of the other interesting things about Jar Jar, because uh, Ewan McGregor was talking about this in the you know press for the Kenobi series, uh, was how difficult it was to work with CGI characters because nobody had ever done that before. And that Jar Jar and Yoda were two of the first fully CGI characters um, and how that kind of that was difficult for them 
to interact with him uh, just because of this new technology. Which, okay, was Yoda, wasn't Yoda still a puppet in the original? He was in the original Phantom. Yeah, Man. right. And then that, I didn't God, know that. I don't know if they've called it a special edition, but there are absolutely new scenes. Yes. Particularly in the pod race. Um, like the, there's new uh, racer introductions. There's new yeah. uh, just different shots in there. Um, the Oris is the Oris thing, like the bounty hunter brief glimpse. I don't know if that's in there. Or I think Aura Singh was always there. Oh, wait, never mind, though. Because <laughs> uh, that, that's where she came from. Uh, again, one of these throwaway designs, and then they kind of say, hey, that looked cool. Let's do something with that. Um, same thing with uh, Quinlan Voss in this movie. It was just kind of a random extra, and then they looked at him and said, hey, it's pretty cool. We can make a Jedi out of that. Also, Deborah Palaba is also in this. Deborah Palaba's in here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, again, like they, they just kind of said, oh, hey, we have this character. Let's uh, let's flush her out a little bit um, down the line. Which, hey, I'm for that. I think so. I think something that gets lost in the so something you guys were talking about earlier was the the purpose of the Phantom Menace. And and I, I think something that gets gets lost is, you know, for for a shitty of a world building movie in some ways that it was, that was the purpose of the movie. Right. If you in in some ways, Johnny, to to your point, you're you're right. The Clone Wars um is is surely a, a, a better conflict for, for the entirety of the prequels. I don't think there's a question about that. But would the Clone Wars exist without without George Lucas getting his feet wet with the with the new CGI and, and trying to introduce all these new characters? I mean, believe it or not, I'm I'm not sure it would. I think it absolutely um, would because the Clone Wars existed in Episode Four. As well, a concept. yes, y- yes, Did, and do you no. mean the Clone Wars like the series or just kind of? Yes. Okay. No, no, I'm not talking about. Yes, I, Clone Wars would introduce in Episode Four. Right? I mean, it's in the first 20 minutes of the film, but the 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 animated series and in the, in the how that came to be, I'm not sure it would. Oh no! Right. I I I meant if you basically just make the prequel the conflict like the prequels are just the Clone Wars, just like the original trilogies, the like Civil War, Galactic Civil War, and the uh, sequels are the First Order versus the Resistance. Like, and that's no. the conflict of the trilogy. And, and no, I I totally I totally see that point, but the stumble in the beginning is what allowed a lot of these other things to happen. Is is what I'm saying. I I think that I agree with everything you guys are saying about the the disappointment across the with with the how the movie panned out. I mean, I don't think there's you know I don't think that's a you know new concept. But what I do struggle with is you know talking about totally changing the universe. You know, and, and with when it comes to the Clone Wars series, it just wouldn't exist without the Phantom Menace. George Lucas almost had to mess up in in some ways in order for that to to develop. I I see what you're saying. I wouldn't phrase it as he has to mess up because that almost excuses because he was trying, but 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 he he was trying to do a lot of new concepts, right? He was trying to shove a lot of things in this movie. He's playing around with CGI, which is brand new in 1999. He's trying to acclimate the Star Wars universe and bring it into the 
essentially what was going to be the 21st century, right? Um, given how how close it was to the you know being released in 99, right? 99, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, he's trying to reintroduce the Star Wars universe in, in into to this new concept, right? I think there's a lot on his plate in regards to that. I think we I think we forget that, right? It's easy enough for us to look back. It's a lot harder when you're trying to create yet a second universe with second new technologies. Like he already did this in the in the uh, original trilogy. Now he's having to bring the Star Wars universe into the 21st century. That's hard. I agree with all that, but I still think that you can do you can still do a better job with the with the writing than he did with like, one well, person. I think. Well, yes, because you you have advisors, which he had more people advising him on the original trilogy and when you, about like the script and oh, go ahead. When you center the whole universe, though, essentially around one person, right? And that's what George Lucas, even in the original trilogy, you are correct. Some of the writing was done by others, right? Especially The Empire Strikes Back, right? Certainly. That's definitely true. Um, but at the end of the day, the Star Wars universe is a George Lucas creation, right? And when you do that, um, you come with the pros and cons of it. That's why I always thought it was so silly when, when you know, uh, George Lucas sold Disney to to uh, sold a sold Disney. That'd be a concept. Sold Star Wars to uh, <laughs> to Disney, and they they said it was a sellout. Like, well, I mean, yes and no, right? Um, the reality is, before that, the Star Wars universe is essentially dead. Yeah, we right? wouldn't have. Yeah. yeah, the Clone Wars would have been mostly dead. So if you're going, so if you're going to use the, the argument that some of the people right now, the pure, the prequel purists, are uh, still use that George Lucas was the was the sole visionary of Star Wars, then you're going to get that kind of crap where he gets overwhelmed. He's going to try to introduce a bunch of things, and the story sucks, which is exactly what happened. Well, and that's I mean, that's why I think fundamentally that's the biggest problem with like the prequels is that it's a solely George Lucas creation. Yep. And while he is like a visionary and amazing at like the world building and a lot of the more filmmaking aspects of it, when it comes to a lot of the writing stuff, uh, in particular, and and like directing and actor type stuff, he's not as skilled. No, he's really not. Yeah, I think that's you know, and and I think like part of what we're also seeing now, and this might be a discussion for another podcast but i think you know when you view you know essentially all of star wars through one lens that being george lucas's i think that's why a lot of people were taken aback by the sequels because you know they're george perfect no but still great i mean you know i i hope this isn't coming off as me ragged or like that i don't like the phantom menace i love every star wars movie um but I think when people they see Star Wars through a different lens, it's so new and so uh, so different. Just because you know J.J. Abrams has a different style than George Lucas, um, I think that's what a lot of this you know, as you said, the George Lucas purists. Um, I think it's it's more shock than anything else because they're just so used to one almost singular vision. But I think you know so much of the strongest Star Wars when you look at you know Empire was not. Uh, directed by George Lucas. Um, Return of the Jedi was not directed by George Lucas. When he has that help, when he has somebody that kind of helps make up for, you know, the gaps in his skills, that's where 
his stories shine the brightest. And I think maybe that's where the prequel trilogy could have used that help. Agreed. And I think this brings up yet another another great point, right? Um, in putting the Phantom Menace into the, the, the greater universe, um, I actually think the sequels in some ways, uh, you know, maybe this is a hot take, but the sequels in some ways made the Phantom Menace as a in in its own way, I think. Um, and I'm not I'm not. Did you say made it worse or better? I didn't. I I think it made it worse. Okay. And and I'll explain. And and the reason why I think that is because uh, I think all three of those movies in the sequels. So first off, they didn't. The biggest argument against the sequels is that there's no strong underlying thread like there is in the prequels. And I'm not going to debate that there is a. But if you take each of those as individual movies, um, all Why three of them, each each of the three sequels as individual movies, I think they were all more entertaining than The Phantom Menace. I would um, I would take issue with Rise of Skywalker in lots of major ways. We can get into that later. I, I would too. <laughs> I, I have no doubt. I, I agree. That being said, I still think all three of them are more entertaining than The Phantom Menace. Uh, and they all three, you know, taken separately probably build a better world than the phantom menace does as well um well that that i highly disagree with because i don't know we don't see most of the world in the sequels we see like three planets oh (laughs) that's another desert one yes Uh, including another desert one I, I I would disagree. That's for another podcast. I, I highly disagree with that. But I I still think the Phantom Menace, when it comes to um, both entertainment value and the ability to build a world, while I think it was a, an important piece in the Star Wars puzzle, I think it just didn't go well. Yeah, I no, I I generally would agree with that. I don't. Yeah. But but I think it is more. I think there are more essential components than most. Uh, yeah, we, we we'll have to getting. I would sequel. I would speak up more, but I still haven't seen Rise of Skywalker. So yeah, but, and I, uh, I just I disagree. I disagree with Johnny on 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 how aggressively he dislikes the Rise of Skywalker. But uh, I. Fun fact is that when I initially came out of that movie, I thought it was my favorite of the sequels, and it it has dropped rapidly in the last, like... That's actually a very... Because I felt... Well, I I don't think I put it as my favorite. I definitely liked it a lot more walking out of the theater. That was me for The Last Jedi. Um, Well, we'll we'll get to that. Uh, Yes. (laughs) It's funny how you start talking about the prequels. It's, It's very hard to talk about. I feel like the prequels without bringing up the sequel. Uh, it is because they are similar, so different. They're they're fun to compare. Um, and, and there's a there's a lot of there is a there's a lot of toxic discourse in general, just in general in the Star Wars like fandom, but like also a lot of toxic discourse comparing those prequels and the sequels. And there are a lot of valid things to talk about. And then there are like the dumb, like not the dumb like. You let a woman speak? But, but, um, yeah, and, like, again, discourse, it kind of, it devolves quickly sometimes. But, you know, there is valid criticism and praise of every movie 
ever made pretty much. Um, yeah. I'm not super concerned about this podcast getting into the invalid criticism. <laughs> uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I that I think is one of the strongest parts of the Phantom Menace and actually, you know, continues to be one of the strongest parts of the Star Wars universe is uh, how they introduce Maul. And then, you know, the, the climax, you know, is certainly phenomenal. In that is one of the best shots in all of Star Wars when yeah. the doors open up. Oh, no, there's no the doubt. Music, it's so perfect. That passion that Obi-Wan shows when he's going to, you could feel him wanting to kill Darth Maul. Yes. Right? That is extremely well done. We actually rarely, not rarely, but it's one of the high emotional points of the series in that, in that moment right there. 100% agree. Oh, when they're facing off before the, uh, the laser doors go down. And even when the laser doors go down, then you can feel Obi-Wan wants to kill Maul. Yeah, the right? way his fighting style changes, it's just like, oh, oh, he's going at it. They, that, I still think that the choreography-wise, this is probably, this is my favorite fight in the series. In terms of just pure, it's not my favorite overall, we'll get into that, but choreography-wise, I think it is the best in the, in the series. Yes. For lots of reasons. And that's why this movie is so difficult, because I brought up earlier on one hand, the criticism of it, I think, can be a little startling at times. But on the other hand, the criticism, I think, is dead on. Right. But this is one of the moments where you're like, if this one, it's one of those moments where you're like, wow, this movie actually has some real value. Right. You could see what George Lucas was doing. Yeah, and I wanted to actually bring up a specific part of that fight um, as well. In the moments leading up to it just being Maul and Qui-Gon, where, you know, he's meditating, Darth Maul's kind of taunting him. Great stuff all around there. And then the doors open. And the way the music kind of intensifies, but also gets quiet, and you can feel the death coming. Like, even without knowing that he's about to die, you can feel it, and it's very tense, and it's almost satisfying in a morbid way when he does. It's just very well done, and then to see the follow-up with Obi-Wan and Maul, it's a very gratifying fight. I love that fight. Yeah, I think to talk about that moment, there's when he's meditating, you almost feel like he's he understands what's about to happen. You know, I think that's just about, yes. you know, him being a great Jedi is that he kind of realizes this is my destiny. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, maybe you could almost say like he knew that Obi-Wan was going to need to see that to be able to defeat Maul and that he was not going to be able to do it. And you, you can kind of try to psychoanalyze him, but you definitely see in Liam Neeson's performance this kind of quiet resolve and acceptance of what I think he feels through the forces coming. Um, and then, you know, to talk about Obi-Wan there, like how he reacts to it, it really does, I think, when you look at Obi-Wan's total character throughout um, the entire uh, saga, to kind of see him go from, you know, the young Padawan who could, in some ways, almost even tap into the dark side to, you know, kind of fuel off anger to where we see him at the end, where he does at the same time 
find that quiet resolve and acceptance of his fate and kind of realize that's his destiny in a very similar way to uh, his master. Yes. I was going to bring up about that mirror too. And that's a very good mirror rhyming uh, moment. Good points. Yeah. I, I, uh, and just, uh, I, I also, I want to, I, I've seen this take a, f- a few different, uh, a few different, a few different, in a few different places, uh, but the idea that the light side loses the duel of the fates in the sense that it's a, in some, to some descent there, I forget exactly where I originally saw this, but to some degree, they're not, they're, yes, it's Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon versus Darth Maul, like to save Naboo, but like it, they're fighting over Anakin's fate. And Qui-Gon was the mentor that Anakin needed, not Obi-Wan, because Obi-Wan wasn't ready. And 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 he wasn't ultimately. In some ways, he is obviously like they develop a great friendship. But Bygone was the mentor that that like could guide Anakin through his the specific issues and things that Anakin would have to deal with as he grew up and grew to a jet to becoming the powerful Jedi he becomes, mm-hmm. and that. Qui-Gon dying in, in to a certain degree means that the light side loses the duel of the fates. I, I, I don't know how much I totally buy that, but it's an interesting uh, interesting way to look at it. No, I think it is an interesting way to look at it. I think because what you do see is, you know, even the, the relationship between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan is very much, you know, mentor-apprentice, you know, teacher-student. And in some ways, by the time, especially when we get to Revenge of the Sith, you see with Obi-Wan and Anakin you know, as Obi-Wan says, it's more of a brother relationship. I think because of that, because, you know, and I think that's developed over, you know, the course of their life together, it's more peer-to-peer than mentor-to-student. At least uh, that's what it develops into. And I think in some ways, maybe that's why Obi-Wan isn't able to keep Anakin in check. You know, those anger, those dark side tendencies that you see develop uh, throughout the saga that will ultimately lead to his undoing um, that he needed that firmer hand that Qui-Gon probably would have been. And that, uh, and that Qui-Gon would be willing to flat out go against the council or certainly like, or certainly kind of subvert the council a little bit or like certain Jedi ideals, but he kind of had the foresight that not even Yoda had to see that were too strict or not, or like unhelpful or like wouldn't, like not good if when taken as as dogmatically as Palpatine would say. Uh, Which I think. I, go ahead. I was just, I think that's something that uh, again coming back to the sequels, but I think there is a very. I don't think they focus on it almost enough in the uh, in the prequel trilogy as a whole, but the Jedi aren't right. You know there is you know. They're kind of held up as this ideal, but you kind of realize that there are there's serious deficiencies in the Jedi Order um, that Qui-Gon recognizes. And I don't think, like even Obi-Wan, he doesn't recognize, Obi-Wan and Yoda, they don't recognize it until it's too late. They are too dogmatic. You know, they are too narrow-minded. And ultimately, as Luke points out in The Last Jedi, the threat was under their nose the whole time and they get wiped out because they were blind. Yeah. Ah, which brings uh brings it into that. I want to say more because Johnny you know, knows perfectly well. The Last Jedi is one of my 
favorite movies in the Star Wars universe, which is a hot take. But, uh, you know, I I think that's something that I think that's something that Qui-Gon, um, you know, you even see it in Attack of the Clones, right? What Qui-Gon's the kind of a thread that's able to see the flaws in the Jedi Order. And I think I think Anakin would have done well with that. But um, Obi-Wan, you know, in some ways also, uh, I think I think Obi-Wan's rebellious side's understated, actually, at times. Um, but I, I don't think he, he's not Qui-Gon. Qui-Gon Qui- refused to sit on the council because he didn't want to... Because he didn't want to deal with them, basically. <laughs> right, exactly. But uh, we see it in the Clone Wars. Obi-Wan's, while, while he is, you know, he is your bread and butter follower of the Jedi, you know, he's not perfect. Um, and he's not straight laced. The problem is he didn't show Anakin that. Right? Oh, oh yeah. I, I love Obi-Wan as a character in general. But yeah, he there are parts of him that don't totally fall in. Like, he definitely knows about Anakin and Padme, which we get hints of in this, and that's a whole other thing. But <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, didn't anyway. age well. Anyhow, yeah. I mean, I, I just I always wonder, like, what, what, you know, could this have been served better if you just aged them both up like five to ten years? Like, would that really right? Like, it? what would have been the harm in making Anakin the same age? Like, yes. why does he have to be ten? <laughs> Um, that's a good, that's a really good question. <laughs> well, it also it gets a uh, when you start to think about how old Vader is. It's like you know Vader he's only like what forty in A New Hope. It's like somehow he's not as scary. Like I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. That's a <laughs> that's a that's a really good point. I think I would have probably preferred Padme to be even younger, actually, to be honest. Yeah, that's uh, the other option. Yeah, as you make her so that's like the childhood friends or whatnot. Like she like, is also a queen. Not but, that that's unheard of, but but she was a queen at like was it she, like twelve or something like that? Was she? I did not yeah, get that. Part. She was like super young uh, when she started, um, or at least there's a history of that on the Naboo. Yeah, it's a they don't get into it, but she was elected, which is odd. I noticed that too. I was like, that's not how queens work, but. Okay. <laughs> It's just a title at that point, but it's also like a, you you elected fourteen year olds, um, right? Because like you said, like yeah, queens, kings and queens can come to power real young, but normally that's like they inherit it, right? They don't get elected to that. But yeah, she was she was elected when she was looks to be thirteen, right? Yeah, and he and Anakin's age nine. Um, so, you know, couldn't couldn't you just, you know, make Padme like twelve and Anakin ten or something like that? Anything know. to bring them a little closer together, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I I think I do like them both just aged up to be like sixteen or something better, but like, yeah, generally just closer just because of the uh, yeah nature. Well, and then Padme gets really motherly with him. And that's, that just makes it worse. I was like, yeah, that's even more than the age gap itself is like that element. Yeah, I think I also think if, if Anakin is older, the argument of the council saying he's too old to begin the training 
I feel like that's a little bit stronger because even nine, it's like the kid's still young. You know? Yeah, but they kidnap infants. That's their whole thing. So yeah, <laughs> the light side and the dark. You know. Well, light yeah, that ties of... into the Jedi are kind of not so paragon of good as we believe they are. Right. Which so... I do appreciate how gray the Jedi Order can honestly be. I like that. Yeah, like it's it, it's almost like trying to shut down people's emotions and desires is like you know not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, okay. There's actually one scene in, in Phantom Mass in my rewatch that really stood out to me as really kind of dumb. I, ha- I have to bring it up. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's trivial. Okay, but they make like Jar Jar and General and the the Gungan army who are all like they're they're so pr- they're apparently a prideful you know warring you know nation, and then suddenly they just promote Jar Jar just some like rando. Like right, who was also general. banned not like twenty yeah. hours ago? I mean, think about how pointless. Like, there, there's a number of scenes in the Phantom Mass just like that that just are totally pointless. The, the land right? battle sequence in general, I think, is pretty boring. It's like, so dull. Like, it looks I, like a PS2 game. Yeah, yeah, also, yeah. It is also very yeah. Uh, I don't which know. I know part product of its time, but woof. I, I love the deployment of the battle droids. That, yes, like it kind of got you really hyped, but then I, I don't know. Like maybe it's just because I know it's supposed to be like David versus Goliath, you know, kind of this more primitive species that you know versus the mechanical monstrosity of them. But it just seems so lopsided because um, you know the, the Gungans' only hope is for Anakin to you know take out the control ship. Um, then, it's yeah, also that, like very purposely very silly and like that ruins like all the tension that it could have possibly had. Yeah. yeah. Then you also do kind of like jump past the, you know, probably thousands of Gungans that died and like nobody really acknowledges them. That's true. Qui-Gon gets his scene and then it's <laughs> his funeral. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what, right. what, what the hell? Nobody cares about the Gungans after that battle. Think about it. Correct. They, they literally cart Boss Nass out in episode three, okay, in the funeral scene for uh, for, oh, yeah. for Padme. I about that. Oh, my yeah, God. They, they literally cart him out, all right? And it's like, what? <laughs> you you ignore the... You, you, you build up all the meaning of the Gungans that you basically treat them as second-class citizens for the rest of, the, like, basically the whole universe, right? Which was the kind of the whole point of them standing up here is, like, we're going to be equals with the Naboo, and then, mm-hmm. you know, they're the ones, they go out, they sacrifice thousands of people, and, you know... The Let's Naboo not forget about out. the electric ball. Uh, the at the what? end. At the end, the ball passing... Oh. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of just random. The like, other, the... God. Uh, like, what, why? Like, what? I understand it's trying. George Lucas is trying to make a visual representation of the peace between two nations, <laughs> right? But like, the song slaps though. Oh yeah. Oh, it does it. Yes. It's hard. <laughs> like, say what say what you will about like and the prequels in general, but like the soundtrack, the score is. Stellar throughout the whole thing. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, another funny 
comment about the battle. Uh, this is nitpicky, but it's funny. The the ascension guns. It's a really cool idea, but they they kind of move really slow when they're moving up the building. Oh, the grappling. Oh, part? right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> it would have been just a little bit easy for them to just be shot through the window. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I had, yeah, you're right. I actually never thought about that. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous, it's a cool right? Concept, but it's just really funny. <laughs> it feels kind of like almost like Power Rangey. Yeah. How cheesy <laughs> and slow it is. Power Rangers were uh, real big at that time. Yes. Also, ducks are confirmed in the Star Wars universe. I mean, you do like to see that, right? <laughs> For those who don't know what I'm talking about, Panaka, Captain Panaka, says, if we don't get the generator fixed, we'll be sitting ducks. And yes. I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> also, one other thing I do want to bring up is the uh, the way George Lucas did minority representation in the film in a more, in a more real, you know, not to, not to switch gears too quickly, but... Um, you know, Panaka, and then he gets replaced in, with uh, Typho in, uh, in episode two, but it's it's token representation. Um, and, you know, I, I know, you know, it's the, th- you know, it's the late 90s, but, um, you know, the, the minority representation was lacking. I just wanted to toss that bad boy in there. Yeah, no, yeah, it is. And also, like, the female the characters, strong female characters. Padme's kind of a, I don't know, strong female character. But also her most notable, like, her most notable characteristic is her, like, like costume changes and her hairstyle. Like, <laughs> or bowing to a man. <sighs> I will <Yes>. slightly disagree. <laughs> I think Padme is kind of a boss in this film because she, you can tell she cares about her people and she will do anything to help them and protect them. But yeah, she's not great either. She has some really good moments. And, le- and like, I think what so. did she see? Go on. No, that's all. I think yeah, he, but, I think she does have great moments. Yeah, when Natalie Portman does a really good job when she's able to like do that stuff, like when it's the kind of proper dull Queen Amidala, especially when she's doing those like like she's I don't know preaching, but not like political speech and not even really orating for a political speech. I'm just like it's just up. Oh, here's the hairstyle for this scene and. <laughs> And then you start to wonder how she managed to change clothes so quickly and why. Um, but yeah. I mean, and, and God forbid there be LGBTQ representation. Yeah, yeah. Again, tossing it Oops. out there. I know. They don't, don't have to. I can really forgive it. It was 1999 I, and it's a I, sci-fi film. So it's like, I, eh, it's fine. I, I do forgive it. I, I, I totally get it. I just uh, want to toss that in there. I, uh. Would have been nice to have a little more uh, minority representation. Well, the, 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 there's no gay people in Star Wars until those two background characters kiss in Rise of Skywalker. But Johnny, it's an iconic moment. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, spoilers for Rise of Skywalker and the <laughs> sort of queer representation. Yeah, well, if you blink, you will miss it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I know. I could totally, you know, I could totally forgive the uh, 
the lack of of certain representation uh, with, with certain groups. It's 1999. I, I get it. Okay. That being said, uh, the tokenism is uh, is notable in the family. Right. I'm just taught it is notable. Like <laughs> Panaka is literally he's the bodyguard. He's like one of like now the the third black guy in the or the second black guy in the universe. Okay. And uh, basically his role is just to drop one-liners throughout the movie and be a bodyguard. I'm not saying it's a stereotype, but it's not not entirely far off. Everyone either. likes Mace Windu, though. Yeah, I was about to say, don't forget Mace. <laughs> hey, second, we, got, we have two black guys at this point. You know? I, I'm just saying the, 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 the roles of minorities are notable in the film. Yeah, it's not... It is a... It's 1999. It, it doesn't get a pass for it, but it is but it is a product of its time. It is. 100% well, agree. My question on that is, is somebody that's worked in film always, whenever you see something like that, is what was the casting call for that? Because it just, in my experience, if the casting call ever said um, any ethnicity, that was going to a white person. Um, hmm. so it's kind of like what would like you know for Panaka like what what did you look for um, yeah. to put that in? So it's kind of I always like that's a great point. Yeah, because that, that was just my experience. Like I only I don't think I ever I think I got one role that was for any ethnicity. Um, I'm Hispanic, maybe you guys. So I only ever got roles that were for Hispanic characters. Um, so that's that I I always kind of. I always feel there's more to those stories than we might end up seeing on sure on screen. Because if they were casting for anything and they did cast a black person, that's a good person. You know, that's good. Um, but if they were specifically going out to look for that, like then that's when it becomes token representation. But I don't know, without seeing that, I'm always like hesitant to jump on and say that without seeing what they were looking for. As someone who couldn't be further from the uh, film industry uh, in my in my career, I would uh, defer to your judgment, and I I, I agree with you completely. It's a uh, it's it, it's it's a weird thing because casting it's harder than it seems. Because uh, I've had to the, one of the shows I was on, I had to I saw people complaining about casting for a very specific role. Um, and they weren't happy with what we did with it. And I was like, there was no way you were going to find a human being who actually fit that role. Um, not not in Dallas, Texas, who was going to work for $70 for the day. Um, but that's, a, that's an aside on that. You know, it's, it's a good, no, it's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Something I, again, I don't have intent to either. So that's a yeah, good point. We haven't. One thing we should touch on: we we haven't talked about midichlorians at all. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, neither has Star Wars since this movie. <laughs> well, and so actually, so I actually had you know. Does everyone know what the midichlorians are based off of? The wills. Sure. Well, I mean the the origin is clearly based on the mitochondria. Like actually, uh, oh my lord, mito- the origin story is actually music. Completely. My background's in uh, science. And uh, so, you know, the mitochondria, so they talk about symbiont beings mm-hmm. living inside a cell. 
um, you know, and one can't live without the other. That's literally the mitochondria. And George Lucas literally didn't even like really even change the name that drastically. Midichlorians, mitochondria. It's like he didn't even really change that. So it's kind of cool that I think whether it was intentional or unintentional, I don't know. There, there probably is a real world correlate correlate to that. The midichlorians is the powerhouse of the force. Yeah. <laughs> a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> just, just point. I, I don't personally have like major issues with it. I, yeah, I, I think it all works better if they're not a thing. But I also don't really care that much. And they, got it loses its mysticism, but only if you dwell on it. If you just kind of ignore it, it's whatever. It's still the force. I, I under okay. At a certain level, it's understandable that the Jedi would probably try to figure out how come some people are stronger in the Force and, you know, some other people aren't. But I think also at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like their quantification through the midichlorians like really does actually end up in practice. Um, Because, you know, at certain moments we do see like Obi-Wan matching Anakin, you know, Anakin, who has the off-the-charts midichlorians, but you can see Obi-Wan in moments matching him in force power. Um, so I always kind of look at it as, there's probably some tie in there, but it, I don't think it's as quantitative as the Jedi might believe it is. But I, that's probably more headcanon than anything else. <laughs> I, I don't mind it, necessarily. I think that it's fine. I mean... If you want to solidify a concept, I guess it's a fair way to do it. Um, I think the universe functions fine with or without it. I don't know why people grasp onto it as as being a serious issue. The mysticism of Star Wars, you know, I don't know if it really adds or necessarily like strongly takes away from it. I always just kind of went with it. I don't know. Do you mean that? the midichlorians don't draw or add to the mysticism or well do i don't think the they draw or add oh good, good or do you mean that the mysticism doesn't add or take away from star wars oh no the mysticism is one of the best parts of star wars in a lot okay. of ways and i think i think disney in some ways takes that away. i i'm pro disney for what it's worth but disney also objectively takes away some of the mysticism in some areas different story the midichlorians, I don't think, is a is a is something that really uh, hurts or or helps uh, really anything in the films. To be honest, I think it why have an in is the question. I, I think that's also goes back to they did kind of drop the whole storyline of it. Um, you don't. Tried, I don't know if they ever mentioned midichlorians again until. There's kind of a brief throw a lot, throwaway line in the Mandalorian about how Grogu has a sufficient M count. Yeah. Um, but I, I if anybody know, can think of one, I can't think of another time where they're ever brought up again. I can't with it on my head. <laughs> no. And neither can I. You're right. Why have it in? Why have it out? But I don't think, you know. Well, I think it was literally to. Uh, show how strong Anakin is 
and like give a reason as to why Qui-Gon suspects he's the chosen one and why he wants him at all. But I think there are better show don't tell ways of doing that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. They needed a way to show that like how like answer this question, how does Qui-Gon know Anakin is so powerful, like abnormally powerful with the force? Um to the point where, you know, Qui-Gon is essentially, like when he's before the council, threatening to throw away his whole, you know, Jedi career to train Anakin mm-hmm. um, and to break with the council that violently. I, I, that, I think that's why they exist. Again, I don't think they, but again, they don't really go anywhere with it. I've noticed on on a lot of Star Wars threads, and especially on Reddit, some people really grasp on to the midichlorians as being a major problem in the Star Wars universe. And that's what bothers me. I don't really think it is. I think there's better ways of doing it. But I don't think – I don't really think it's a problem. But I think it gets to what Matthew was saying is that, like, they they haven't – Star Wars hasn't really done much with it. No, they haven't. Yeah, so, like, it's almost like it's – I agree with the it's it's generally better if it's not there, but it's fine because they don't really do a ton with it. Uh, Matthew, to your earlier point, as far as like how are certain people able to best other people, like basically the kind of power level question, so to speak. Uh, I think that it's it's because there's midichlory your power and your like raw strength or potential power granted by midichlorians matters to a degree but like there's still that skill element so like so like could anakin have beaten could anakin beat yoda at a in a duel i probably not just because he i his skills like yoda's just that much more skillful maybe like with the, the the practice and like basically the the raw power is not everything. Like you can still be bested if some if you're up against somebody that is more skillful or knowledgeable than you. Right. It's skill and practice versus just raw talent. Yeah. A good point, Johnny. So one um, movie making thing that I want to highlight um, there is we all know the pod race. I don't know how everyone feels about the pod race. I really enjoy it. Um, but in particularly, uh, there's, uh, there's one technique they use that I just really appreciated. And that's when Anakin, uh, has to basically fix, um, his pod as he's racing. They, you know, they show him flip the switch and then they cut to what it's doing and they repeat that. And it does it in a way that as a viewer, as the audience, we can kind of follow what's going on and, Throughout that whole thing, I believed that every button does something and it does something important and that he wasn't just, you know, randomly typing like an 80s hacker. I'm in Um, like it seemed actually intentional and purposeful. And I really appreciated that specifically. And even compared to, I think, uh, at least how Harrison Ford describes flying the Falcon. He's just like, yeah, I just move these two things um, just kind of up and down and they do the rest. but that is, it also, it highlights, you know, especially, I know we've talked about, you know, what would have happened if Anakin was a different age, but it does highlight for a nine-year-old to kind of be like, you know, going through all that complex stuff, um, you know, when the average adult can barely handle driving a car, and here's this kid flipping all these switches. <laughs> um, 
you know, that kind of highlight there is something special about him. Good yeah, point. I think that, that that's a better show don't tell than the Midichlorian stuff. Yes. Which I, that's almost a question. Could you, if you had just kind of left it with, uh, you know, Qui-Gon just observing him, you know, one, building the pod, flying the pod, doing all that stuff, would that be enough to kind of like, you know, tip him off? Yeah, or, or you show, I don't know, maybe you show something that's a little more spectacular or out of the out of the ordinary that Anakin does during the pod race or something like that. Yeah, something more concrete even. Yeah, I mean, the, the pod race in general is just a great sequence. It is. And, it is. and one of my favorite, now that I'm a lot of people here probably know one about filmmaking than I do, but the uh, one of my favorite dis- filmmaking decisions of the pod race is that they cut out the music. The music cuts out once the race starts until they reach. It's like the basically the last lap final stretch stuff when it's just Anakin and Sebulba on the final lap. And that's a really, it's how they do that is really effective. And also the sound effects are just really Which I think that's <laughs> almost why they did it was just to show off, hey, listen to this. Um... Yeah, it really sucks you in. I was going to bring that up too. The use of sound effects, music, and lack thereof was stellar in that scene and really sucks you in. Agree with all above stated. Anything else on the Phantom Menace? A lot of good stuff. Well, a lot of good discussion stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, overall, I would say, I think, I think, and this is something I think you could say about the prequel trilogy as a whole and each of the movies, I do feel like the movie is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, when you look at, there are a lot of deficiencies, but I still think, maybe it's just nostalgia talking, it is generally better than all the deficiencies and it would lead you to believe it is. I, I, tend, I tend to agree with that. That being said, I think it's difficult to objectively look at the film and nostalgia clouds it. Yeah, that's, I think, something that's... I I just I, I think it's it's ultimately a bad movie that has some good parts that don't really have a good connecting tissue. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a bad movie. Um, I would still call it, a, but I uh, I would call it a bad movie. But I but I don't know where your standard for bad movie. I mean, I still I, I think it's a good movie with deficiencies, but that's just my take on it. Not yeah, sure where I stand on that. I would. Say- All I was going to say is I think being part of the Star Wars fandom so intensely, I think I enjoy the film immensely. Um, I wouldn't I think if you compared it to other movies in general that are released at the theater, I'd probably say it was spank average. I mean, this was the same year as The Matrix to put that in perspective. (laughs) I just one of the greatest movies ever. But God, yeah. Oof, uh, that's a different discussion. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will um, put a pin on that. <laughs> the reason why I was thinking it was spank average is because if you if you go see your average film in a theater, um, your average sci-fi movie, and there's plenty of them, okay, uh. They all run into the same issue. They try to do a bunch of world building, have some high moments, and struggle to tie it all together. Um, I think the Phantom Menace fits that build. 
I think in the Star Wars universe, it's one of the weakest. Um, but I think overall, I don't think it's a, I think it's spank average for sci-fi films as far as it. No, not, not, and that's fair. I, I, I see that. I think that's what's interesting is that I, my, and my general take is that there, in general, is a. What I think it's cool about the Star Wars movies is that there, there are a lot of reasons to have. There are a lot of different reasons to have a different favorite or to like some more than others, depending on what you just enjoy about entertainment. And like that, I, that I think is really, is really cool. Absolutely. But it's still a bad film. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, anything else? All right. Uh, well, so we will be doing, uh, at least for the Star Wars movies, Episode 2, uh, Attack of the Clones, next, uh, continuing our journey through the prequels. Uh, and so we have been uh, your hosts, Johnny and... Austin. Matthew. Ryan. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.